thank you for coming on the, the podcast. Um, we're going to talk no tender. Yeah, we're going to talk no tender fences. Uh, who am I talking with? Uh, you're talking with Carla Sofia Ferreira and also my amazing co-editor. Hi, it's Kim Sosa. Thank you so much for having us. I'm super honored as a poet, as a co-editor of the anthology, and also as a communist. Awesome. Good to have you. Um, so like, maybe how, how did you two meet uh, would be a good first question. So Carla and I have never met IRL. Um, I'm not sure how we connected on Twitter. I think, um, you know, one of us started following the other and then we just became mutuals and corresponded a lot. Um, Carla's Portuguese and I'm Brazilian. So we sort of have that connection. And then as we started talking more, um, we had sort of just very many layers in our identities sort of crossover. And so I think we... Um, became almost like we formed kind of a sisterly bond through the web, which is, you know, always an interesting way to, <laughs> to mediate um, personal relationships. But I'm, I will be super excited to meet Carla in real life, um, hopefully at AWP soon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, getting to, getting to meet Kim, I think it was like via just following other poets and then seeing Kim's post. I think at the time, Kim, you had something about like Paddington Bear being a refugee and I was just like super into it. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. My Instagram handle, I'll probably change it back. My Instagram handle for the longest time was Kim and then in quotes, Paddington Bear is a refugee Sosa. Yeah. Um, at, the, at, the, <laughs> at the time, also, I'm, a, I'm obsessed with Paddington Bear. I have him tattooed on my body. But at the time, um, the Paddington movies were, like, really popular at a time when um, mm -hmm. immigration rhetoric was becoming increasingly more um, dangerous and pointed against us. So I, that, like, that dichotomy was really interesting mm -hmm. to me because you had all of these white Americans or white United Statesians taking their kids to see a mm -hmm. Paddington bear movie and not realizing that he's an indigenous bear mm -hmm. <laughs> who is a, you know, a refugee fleeing his home country. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I appreciate that you appreciated that Carla. <laughs> oh goodness. Yeah. I remember seeing that and I was like, who is this amazing person who has made this <laughs> awesome connection? Um, and so then Kim and I, ended up getting closer over the work of the anthology. Um, after we sent out the call, Kim sent in this beautiful poem uh, called Devotion um, about her Ava, about her grandma, um, which I really loved. And I, I'll go, I'll backtrack a little bit in a bit about like how exactly we decided to do the anthology, like what was the genesis of that idea, but for, um, for the purposes of like meeting, like getting to meet Kim a little bit more, uh, I guess formally on online and like as like a co-editor of sorts, like a, a co-worker, I was gonna say of sorts. Um, it was through that poem, uh, reading it and being like, oh my God, this is the kind of like vision and voice I would love to have as a co-editor. Um, I knew very much that when I when I started thinking about the anthology, I did not, I did not want to edit it. Um, on my own, I wanted it to be kind of a work of like sisterhood. Um, so I'm, I'm really, I continue to be incredibly honored that that Kim said yes and, and took on an incredible amount of work. Um, so yeah, that's that. 
Thank you, Carla. That's so kind of you. I'm so, I'm really just so glad that you selected that poem for the anthology. I think it's such, I really can't think of a better poem for it. And I'm, I'm really glad that it touched you and has gotten such a good response. Yeah. And I feel like, uh, Carla, you had like a very specific vision for what the anthology, what you wanted the anthology to be. Maybe like, what was that? Did we lose Carla? Yeah. Internet (laughs) technical difficulties. I think I'm still I'm still on. <laughs> it's no problem. I was Carla just Roy had asked you, um, sort of he felt like Roy are your pronouns he him? Oh yeah, yeah, that's good. Okay. Um Roy had mentioned that it seemed like you had a very specific vision going into the anthology and was asking you maybe to expand on that or to lead us into that. Absolutely. Yeah, happy happy to talk about that. Um the anthology was born out of a conversation uh, with another Portuguese-American poet, uh, Marina Carrera, um, who's, uh, who also is from my hometown of, of Newark, New Jersey. Um, and I was back home for the summer. This is when a lot of the ICE human rights abuses were, were coming to light. Um, we were both angry and we wanted to do something. Um, we didn't just want to like complain about it. We wanted to take some kind of tangible action. Um, and so I spoke to her at the time um, and suggested maybe the idea of us uh, hosting a reading in, in Newark. Um, she's also part of a, of a group of poets in Newark called the uh, Brick City Collective. Um, and so trying to see if we can get that group together, host a reading, and uh, raise some money for organizations that were already on the ground, uh, helping immigrant families, um, and helping immigrant families, particularly those who are being affected um, by CBP and ICE. Um, and <laughs> unfortunately, due to just like timing, I wasn't, I wasn't in Newark for long enough. It didn't seem like we were gonna be able to get the reading off the ground. So Marina was actually the one who suggested to me in conversation, maybe we could create like an anthology of poetry to raise money uh, for it. And <laughs> uh, I remember thinking like, oh God, I'm like super not qualified to do this, but also I really want to do this. <laughs> um, and so I started kind of drafting up ideas for, for what this could be. Um, I started thinking about different poets, uh, different poets from immigrant backgrounds who I really admire, um, and then wanting to create a space that was really inclusive, um, a space that could uplift uh, work of not just established poets, but of poets who have never been published before as well, um, and really make it, I, I, I refer to this like metaphor a lot, um, but and I know it might sound a little bit cheesy, but I'm all about the cheese. I, I like the idea of it being just like a community garden, something that we grow together, something that's open to all, um, all of us who are coming from immigrant backgrounds and, and immigrant families. Um, and so that's kind of how the work started. And I wanted to identify a group that I felt was doing a lot of good already, uh, which was Raices in, in Texas. Um, and so that's kind of how the anthology was born and it was Marina and I who uh, who were first kind of crafting like you know the calls for submission and and trying to get that organized and and Kim 
Kim was among one of the first poets who submitted to us. Uh, and when I, when I read her poem, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> um, I, I really want her to join um, our editorial team. Um, yeah, it was very, it was very important to me too that we were, that the group of editors editing No, no Tender Fences um, was not just one person, that we were coming from a variety of different life experiences. Um, and so that was, that was kind of the goal, the goal and the vision for it. Um, I hope that's helpful. Don't, don't hesitate to ask follow-up questions. Sorry for being so rambly. <laughs> Oh no, that's definitely the point of a podcast. Uh, maybe, uh, <laughs> uh, what drew you to the to that kind of vision, Kim? Um, well, for me at the time, it everything just kind of came to a point. I had a similar conversation with one of my dear friends and mentors, a poet in Pittsburgh. I was living in Pittsburgh at the time, um, Emily Monslate, and she and I had met for coffee, and I was just talking about how incredibly frustrating was to see all of these white women online um, mm -hmm. sort of in arms about at the time there was another um, something about women's reproductive health was under attack I mean as it always is in this mm -hmm. country and so many others but it was incredibly frustrating to me at the time that we were watching these young immigrant children literally die um, in immigrant cages or in cages that immigrants have been placed in by, um, you know, this administration and so many others in this country. We can't forget the legacy of human rights abuses by the United States government against immigrants. But um, anyway, it, it was just so frustrating to see white women sort of in arms about something that affected them, but then completely silent about what affects us. Um, and when I say us, I want to clarify that I, I am an immigrant, I am a Latinx immigrant, but I do mm -hmm. wear white skin in this world. So I recognize that a lot of the crimes that are perpetrated against immigrant communities, I'm insulated against by the way that I look. Um, but I, at the time, I had an incredible amount of fear because my father was not a citizen at the time. Um, and, you know, there had been some things that had happened with us personally that had sort of put us on edge about um, just the sort of escalated state of crisis that, that we were feeling at the time. But to backtrack, um, so all of this was sort of in conversation with my friend Emily over coffee, and I was just talking about how I felt completely hopeless and immobilized mm -hmm. by that, by just the lack of conversation and you know, as loud as I try to be, I'm just one voice and I felt, you know, really alone. And so Emily's advice was similar to the advice that um, it sounds like Marina had offered Carla, where she said, well, you know, let's, let's do something active about that. Let's mm -hmm. take on some kind of action. And she suggested a reading series. Um, and so I was kind of I kind of had that in the back of my head, and then I saw Carla, I think maybe Carla had messaged me about submitting or something or other, and then that turned into coming on as a co-editor for the anthology. Um, and then, so with those two projects on board, eventually Christopher Soto had messaged me through Twitter that they were put putting together some kind of action um, at the same time. And I was able to fold in my 
a reading series with Writers for Migrant Justice, which was Christopher Soto's and, and um, a community of other poets initiative, uh, a sort of mm -hmm. a national collective that's folded in with all of these efforts all around the same time. And so instead of feeling really hopeless and immobilized, I actually felt really powerful. Um, and, you know, to take on this work with Carla and Marina, to take on the work with Christopher Soto and the other poets mm -hmm. with, involved in Writers for Migrant Justice, um, to put together a reading series, it just, to take on these sort of like actions really sort of lifted me out of crisis in a way. Um, and so I'm, I'm really just filled with gratitude for that. But it was really that uh, feeling of crisis that had me um, you know, had me working with Carla and Marina on the anthology and taking on all of these other projects. And at, at, now that we're coming on the end of the year, which, um, you know, is, is meaningless in a lot of ways, but can be meaningful <laughs> in others <laughs> as someone who's not too convinced by this concept of time. But I, I think <laughs> looking back, it's been really wonderful to reflect on, uh, the effects of those actions that we were able to take, which is that, you know, we did carve out a space and we were able to, to make, um, make an effect in this world, which is incredibly powerful. And I'm so grateful for it. And I think um, it's important that we continue the work too. Yeah, for sure. Um, <clears throat> maybe, maybe um, a good question to ask too is um, like, Carla, how did you um, meet Marina? Who's I think the third editor of this collection and maybe Kim, how'd you get involved with writers for migrant justice? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so I met Marina first, of course, via via poetry Twitter, which is like often a mess, <laughs> um, but like in, involves meeting amazing people like you and Kim as well. And in this case, Marina, um, it was a um, last last year, September twenty eighteen. Uh, I believe it was poet Shara Leslie who was doing September Women Poets. Um, and so I decided to join that by by posting poems uh, by different uh, women, and and also I included like non-binary folks as well uh, for like that month of September who I wanted to share their work, um, and so I that's how I found like Marina's poetry, um, and I had never heard of another Portuguese American poet. <laughs> um, like it was it was very exciting for me at like 28 years old to find someone else who was actually from my hometown and and shared uh shared my background coming from an immigrant family um and so i ended up actually meeting marina at the dodge poetry festival uh which is also taking place in newark in my hometown so we met up there and we we kept in touch online uh for 2019 i had set a goal of like reviewing as many poetry books as I could uh, by by women and by non non-binary folks, um, and Marina was one of the authors whose book uh, "Save the Bathwater" I ended up reviewing in in 2019. We kind of kept kept in correspondence that way, and uh, when I was back in Jersey over the summer, we continued to have kind of these conversations about what was happening and the fact that what was happening in terms of like ICE abuse against immigrants and CBP abuse against immigrants. And just like, as Kim mentioned before, the, the abuse of immigrants by the American government is nothing new. 
Um, but the intensification um, really that we've seen under this current uh, this current administration is <sighs> it's really heartbreaking. Um, and I, I think too, Carla, just to not to interrupt, but just to bounce off that really quickly. Um, I think as poets too, it's been really concerning to watch that intensification because what's been intensified is um, language mm. and yeah. how how pointed the language against us has now become. So that you know, as poets, yeah. we know that language is actionable, and um, because the language has changed and become so accelerated so quickly it's really led to these crimes that we see not only on the part of the government but by um you know citizens taking up arms against us by by white americans absolutely um you said that perfectly kim and i think that that's so That's such a that's such an apt reflection on the way that language is being weaponized. Um, I remember, you know, a little bit after after Trump had been elected, um, one of my one of my uncles in Portugal was just like, "Oh, you know, he hasn't done that much. Like, don't worry about it. It's gonna be fine. Like, it's gonna be okay." And I was just like, you know, from day one of his campaign. When he began calling Mexicans, uh, which of course in in Trump speak is like all Latinx, um, when he began calling Latinx folks murderers and rapists, um, he already caused harm. You know, I saw the effect that that had directly on my students. Um, I saw students come up to me on the day of the election, you know, once Trump had been announced, um, and them coming up to me and being like, you know, I, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a rapist. Um, and me being like, I, I know, I know, like you are wonderful. You, you are so loved. And just like having to deal with the kind of psychological trauma that so many of these kids have already been through in part because the U S has destabilized conditions in their home countries, which is part of why they're immigrating here in the first place. And to see that trauma just repeated um, by someone sitting in a seat of, of so much power. And so I think, as, as Kim said, as poets, you know, we really, we pay attention to language. Um, and so for Marina and I over the summer, you know, we continued, we continued having these conversations uh, of like the kind of fear and, and, and panic. Um, and as, as Kim was saying, you know, like a lot of we were also seeing a lot of a lot of white women, you know, up in arms about things that like really affect them directly. I mean, Marina and I have the have have our white privilege as as Portuguese immigrants. Uh, you know, there are several there are so many Portuguese like Trump supporters out there who have completely forgotten their history of when they first came to this country. Um, we could turn away from all of this. We could, we have the luxury of doing that, um, which other Latinx immigrants do not. Um, but for us, it was just looking at the situation and being like, fuck no, like we need to get involved. We need to do more than just complain about it and, and talk about how terrible it is. We, 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 need, to, we need to do something directly. Um, and for me, it was just, it's very, it's deeply personal beyond my own identity as an immigrant, I mean, working 
working with immigrant students um, from from Mexico, from Central America, uh, from Tonga, from China, from uh, uh, from like the Philippines as well. Um, working with these students, um, for me, I felt like nothing I do in the classroom matters if I'm not doing things outside of the classroom to help them. Um, yeah, well, Kim, you said something that I wanted to maybe talk about, which was, yeah, uh, for sure. yeah language, you said language is actionable. And I feel mm-hmm. like, you know, with this anthology, you both have like a very specific vision of like what the, I guess, like what poetry can do. So I guess like, what, yeah. I mean, what do you both think mm-hmm. like poetry can do, I guess? That's such a good question. Um, there's, there's a quote that I always, <laughs> that I always keep in mind um, that I will completely mess up and I don't even remember where the original quote came from it's it's from one of the um one of the uh American romantics and anyway it's something about poet you know language is a sign of an actual fact or something like that it was either Emerson or Thoreau mm-hmm. I want to say that sounds very Emersony so we'll <laughs> say it was Emerson um but anyway I I always keep that in mind because I think for me you know there's that question like well how did you become a poet or when were, you know, when were you actually a poet? And for me, I think that um, every bilingual person is already a poet, like just sort of that having to navigate two languages in your, you know, in your mouth and in your body and in your mind um, at all times is, is for me what for sure I think was my initial poetry moment, how I came to poetry, and then to just, um, I think also every immigrant family is full of poets. Like I, part of my radicalism is I really believe that it's very necessary for us to wrest poetry back away from the academy because poetry has become um, sort of taken from us. Mm-hmm. And um, poetry has nothing to do with academic achievement. Certainly, there are a lot of supports that are afforded to poets by the academy, but you don't need to be an academic to be a poet. You don't need to be inside of any kind of institution to be a poet. And I really push back against that so much because my dad is a poet, you know, has he ever written poetry? Um, I I honestly think maybe he has, (laughs) (laughs) though I've never seen it. Um, but his poetry is not words on a page. It's Mm -hmm. um, how he was able to make a life for himself in this country and back home. It's how he was able to raise us. Um, and so that's sort of like a great fascination of mine in my work is, you know, my dad obviously looms very large, Mm -hmm. but I think that's such a part of our identity as immigrants um, or as people from immigrant families is that so much of what we know about ourselves and our families is through an oral tradition. Um, You know, I I think about like my family graveyard in Brazil um, and Mm -hmm. even on a lot of our documents, our last name, which my last name is spelled the Brazilian way, S-O-U-S-A. Um, but our last name is spelled differently, even on all of the tombstones in our graveyard. And it's not because it was intentionally misspelled or once, once someone had the audacity to tell me that it, it was uh, Americanized, quote unquote. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, it's actually just because there were different 
levels of literacy, you know, in the people carving mm-hmm. those gravestones. And, and so there's always been this fascination with language for me and um, understanding that language has consequences. Language is a consequence itself. I mean, mm-hmm. for me and for so many others, uh, language is violence. I mean, if we're talking about our preoccupation with our own identities, how much violence has been done by language, even every time I open my mouth to speak, whether it's in English or in Portuguese, I'm speaking the language of imperial violence. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a Brazilian, I'm not Portuguese, but I speak Portuguese because I was colonized mm-hmm. by that country. Um, so language is so much more than just um just you know it's so much more than i think what we take it for granted as and so to bring that back to the anthology all of that sort of being inside of me and constantly being um a preoccupation of mine to be able to put that to use as an action against the state rather than sort of as uh, being implicated by the state because um you know i i am implicated i live in the united states i wear white skins so i i am very implicated by whiteness by united states imperialism etc cetera, etc cetera. and so to be able to sort of take on a project like this and push back against mm-hmm. that to do and like to actually put something out into the world and pull disparate people together because we are all so scattered um, as immigrants, you know, that's, that's our nature. I think it was really powerful for me because we sort of took away or maybe chipped away a little bit at the more, um, the more violent nature of language and of words. And we sort of took that power back a little bit and created, like Carla loves to say, which I don't think is cheesy, Carla. <laughs> I think it's really beautiful that Carla has always approached this project as a community garden because it's it's immediately more tender um you know and i think that that as poets we're always reaching for tenderness we're always trying to to carve a more tender space in this world um and as immigrants too you know that's we can talk about why people immigrate and you know that's different for everyone of course but so much of it is about tenderness too because so much of it is about family and um i don't you know what's more tender than family what's more tender than a community um so i don't know that that was perhaps a little rambly but (laughs) i I think that's yeah i think that's really what what drew me to the project and what um what i'll carry with me still about the project kim that was that was beautifully put um when you were talking about tenderness i was thinking about uh, that line from uh, Araceli Skirmai, uh, and to tenderness, I add my action. Um, and I think that's really, if we were to like say what is like the the anthem of this anthology, it's it's really that. It's like how how can we how can we bring how can we bring in a sense more more tenderness alongside action. Um, how can we bring in compassion and care um, that something I always go back to is this idea of like never being nice but always being kind and to me like this idea of kindness is like calling people out on their bullshit standing up for what's right standing up for the most vulnerable 
Um, and I feel like, yeah, that, that whole, that, that line and, and uh, like to tenderness, I add my action, um, really speaks to what you were saying, Kim, so, so perfectly. And so like, you really encapsulated, like, what really was our, was our goal with, with the language. Um, and that's also part of why, um, why we kind of resisted, um, just having it all be in English while Spanish is still, uh, you know, a colonial language. Um, it's one of the things that we can't entirely get away with, both with Spanish and Portuguese. Uh, we really wanted to make sure that all forms of language were being celebrated. Um, and so we tried, like even including uh, Raquel Salas uh, Rivera's poem, um, I asked them specifically, like, can we just include the Spanish version instead of both the Spanish and the English, in part because I, I didn't want it to be comprehended by monolingual folks entirely. I wanted, I wanted there to be a resistance to translation. Um, and it reminds me, uh, Roy, when you were speaking about like, what can, what can poetry do? I mean, I think, I think poetry, poetry is a way for language to resist the violence of enforced language. Um, poetry is a way to question what language is predominant, what, what language has power as instituted by like capitalist empires. Um, when I was in uh, a workshop with uh, poet Jose Olivares, uh, a Mexican American poet, he mentioned this idea uh, of, of who has the burden of translation, um, who is required to translate their speech. Uh, in this country. Um, and that's something I was thinking about a lot uh, going into going into the anthology is like, how can we create an anthology that resists conformity to a dominant tongue? Um, and, and thank you, Kim, for, for being so kind and saying that it's not cheesy. I'm always, <laughs> um, I always, I always am afraid of being like too sentimental and too mushy. Um, no, not at all. I'm very, I'm very pro sentiment, but also I think the the beautiful thing about approaching it as a community garden is another thing that poetry can do. And another thing that poetry has really done for me this year is, um, it's really sort of, uh, sort of gathered me in like this year, I've really found um, my Latinx poetry family. And that's really pow powerful for me personally, because when I when I immigrated here um, to Austin, Texas, to the United States, when I was, you know, just five years old, mm. a, a Latinx identity for me was very much more informed by um, my Central American friends, because we didn't have, I mean, we were like the only Brazilians, mm -hmm. <laughs> as we as we so often are. And there's, you know, there's a lot that's not perfect about um, Latinx as an identifier. But for me, what I appreciated about, about sort of claiming that is that mm -hmm. um, it does sort of gather us. And yes, we're not all the same. But there is a lot of sameness in our difference. And so I think that one of the things that poetry can do is it can gather us that way. And I think that what's so powerful about poetry now in 2019 and, you know, moving into 2020 is that a lot of poets taking on um, poetry projects are doing it in a way that's 
focused on identity and it's focused on community and in building those communities um, and in being so loud about our identities, we're sort of resisting and we're pushing back or even refusing. I I can say that I refuse sort of what an understanding of poetry has been before us, which has been largely useless, right? Or largely Mm -hmm. only for one kind of person, one kind of audience. Um, and being written by only one kind of pers- person. <laughs> and uh, so I think, I mean, and, you know, still a lot of those people are holding on. Um, but <laughs> what I appreciated about the anthology and what I think that the kind of poetry that we're writing and we're editing and we're uplifting, the power that that has is that it does create community for, for people who mm. have a, you know, for people who community is not always a friendly word, I guess. Or who, or for for people for who, like myself, um, don't really yet know what community can mean for us. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a really powerful and important tool um, to have is to use poetry to sort of try and and create that for you know not only for ourselves personally but for for folks who have stories like ours or um, who have led lives more similar to ours than the poetry we grew up reading in high school you know which is (laughs) which I think um is very antithetical to that yeah as a high school teacher I'm trying to change like the poetry tm that everyone's reading in high school and it's been fascinating to see students responses to that being like wait I didn't know poems could be like this um, and it's really amazing. I mean, most especially, um, you know, seeing my my students of color, it's both depressing and inspiring at the same time when they when they tell me like this is the first time I've read work in an English class by someone who shares my cultural background. Like this is the first time I'm reading work uh, by a Chinese American or by a, a Salvadoran poet, like, for me it um you know on the one level i feel just like deeply sad that students have not seen work first of all by living poets they're reading a lot of dead white poets if they're reading any poetry at all um but also for so many of them to have never seen themselves in literature i think it turns it turns off kids from poetry um and what's been amazing about teaching living poets with um with a lens towards particularly poets of color, particularly queer poets, uh, immigrant poets, disabled poets, um, making sure, like seeing seeing how all of a sudden their expectations about poetry have are like defied. They go into the unit being like, oh, poetry, no. And then, you know, in the first few days, they're like, what? Like, uh, showing them again to go back to Jose Olivares, there's this poem uh, that he's done uh, that, that that he reads, and you can see the video on YouTube, which is great, of his reading of Mexican Heaven. And there's this one line uh, where he's like, haha, just kidding, there are no white people in heaven. And the students just like absolutely cracked up. And like some of my students of color at the end of class, like, uh, one of one of the kids was like talking to one of his friends, uh, also another student of color, and was like, "Oh, that was so good! That was so good!" And I like went up to him and was like, "Hey, like, what are you talking about?" And he was like, 
the way Jose Olivares was roasting the white people. <laughs> and it was just like, it brought me so much joy. Um, and I think I think that's something uh, to talk about too, to answer Roy's question uh, about, you know, what can poetry do? Um, I want to echo what Kim said about building, you know, building community, especially for those who are, you know, the word community uh, can be looked at with some suspicion, um, especially in creative writing circles, um, you know, because of the way it's been mo monopolized by, um, by the academy, by establishments that are very heavily funded by capitalist organizations. Um, but also just, you know, poems can bring joy. Um, I really love seeing that. And I think, you know, that joy, that joy too is, is part of the resistance, you know, finding, finding that happiness, uh, that a poem can bring. Um, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, so someone you thanked in like the, towards the end of the anthology was your students, Carla, maybe like you could tell people what they did to help work on the anthology. Uh, they're, I, I love my kids. I know I talk about, <laughs> I feel like I talk about this on Twitter all the time, how my students make me a better person. Um, I really feel like if I'm at all a caring and hopeful person, it's because I'm a teacher. Um, I feel like, you know, so much of my soul is just like crotchety and judgmental. <laughs> but like working, working with students, um, is just such it really it really gives me hope for the, for the future and you know that that's a cliche to say i know but it's it's i see it in my classroom the level of compassion the level of critical thinking uh in this current generation um they are so much smarter uh than i was at their age and by and by smarter i don't mean uh academic intelligence i mean they are good close readers of the world around them there there was one student who started off the year being like completely politically uninterested and then i just read their final one of their final papers uh where they talk about how the root cause of immigration to the United States from Central American countries was actually caused by US back instability in those countries. And like reading this and being like, oh my God, kid, <laughs> like you came into class being like, I don't care about politics. And now you're offering this cogent political critique. Um, I think seeing that, like seeing that evolution, seeing that change, um, that that keeps me hopeful and like that ultimately like that that sustains me that's kind of like my my life raft in the middle of of everything else all of the shit that's going on today um in this country and across the world um they specifically um a lot of my students ended up coming after school and helping proofread a lot of the poems <laughs> um because this was a self-published thing um and kim and i uh were doing like the the bulk of the editing work uh at the end and marina was helping us with like the selection process and, and and advertising uh towards the end of it it was just like okay uh now i gotta design this thing <laughs> um and so some of my students actually in fact stayed uh stayed after school um and and help proof the the poems so like if they like i when i say that i really that i really owe them um yeah they were uh <laughs> 
you know, they, they were part of the reason why this anthology exists um, because they took that extra time. Now I gave them like, oh my goodness, just like a small bit of extra credit and like the language category for like whatever grammar mechanics to come help. They only had to come for about half an hour to get that extra credit. There were students who stayed there hours and hours. And I was like, you guys know I'm not gonna offer you like more extra credit. Like you can go do other things now. <laughs> um, and they still stayed because they were so invested in the anthology. Um, they they actually like really cared about what was happening and it's been really cool to update them throughout and be like, hey, you guys, like this is how much we've raised for Raices so far. Um, and it was also really cool to have two of my students uh, who ended up submitting work for the anthology. Um, so I had one student uh, who was a Salvadoran immigrant uh, who began writing poetry in my ELD class, uh, continues to write poetry today, David Garcia. Uh, I got to include one of his poems in Spanish, uh, which he had given to me at the end of the school year. Um, I also have another student, Chi Zhang, who's an immigrant from China uh, and an extraordinary artist. And I had asked him if he might be interested in doing some artwork for the anthology. Um, I gave him the Craig Santos Perez poem, uh, Teething Borders, which I had kind of used each stanza to organize the anthology by. Um, and I had asked him basically like, hey, here's this poem, do you think you could create some art for it? Um, and he just sat down uh, over a matter of a few days, came back to me with this beautiful piece. So um, I think, you know, when I, when I say that my students were a part of this, uh, I mean it like more than just like them teaching me how to be a better poet and a teacher and a person. Um, they, a lot of their work went into the anthology itself, um, which was pretty incredible. Um, and it was really, it was a lot of work. Kim, Marina and I were all doing this, um, uh, as, as I think most folks know, un unfunded. We were using our own time outside of our, outside of our jobs, uh, to do this. And I think that was important again, like to maintain it as something that was not, uh, like, affiliated with any institution we did want it to like i very much going into it wanted it to be a self-published thing um and so yeah what that does mean though is <laughs> teaching yourself how to do book design right like i i have no background in that um and so i'm really i'm really ultimately just so so grateful you know for the for the sistership of, of kim and marina and also just for like the little community building that ended up coming out of this with my students. Um, sorry for rambling. Gosh, you asked me about my students. I'm just going to go on for days about how much I love them. <laughs> oh, no, it's cool. No, like I said before, I think that's kind of the point of the podcast uh, generally. I, this is my so. first podcast and it, and it shows. <laughs> oh, no, it's fine. You're doing, you're doing good. You're doing great, sweetie. Quote. Um, <laughs> I see like whatever Kardashian mother that is. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's very much the reference. <laughs> yes, there we go. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, well, I guess uh, Kim, I'll ask you. Um, yeah. Like with the poem devotion, I think like the mm -hmm. anthology has like a specific kind of meaning for the word tenderness throughout it, and I feel like your poems yeah. maybe 
like in that in that greater conversation so i guess like how do you see your poem fitting into that meaning of tenderness throughout the anthology sure um okay so i had when carla sent out the call i submitted uh two poems of mine that uh had been unpublished um And one was Devotion, and the other was this poem I wrote um, called Gemini Baby that was sort of about navigating um, what it was like to carry a pregnancy that would have resulted in um, an Afro-Latinx child. So um, a child that, like, sort of beyond my own um, dual identity as a Brazilian American as someone who is mixed, um, half, you know, half white, half Brazilian. Um, my mom is a United States citizen. My dad is Brazilian. So I have, um, sort of this, uh, citizenship of two places always hanging over my head. And so a lot of my is sort of obsessed with solving that problem, which I'll never solve, but that's sort of the function of my poetry is wrestling with that forever. Um, but anyway, so both of the poems, I think I submitted towards the anthology thinking, um, that they sort of approached that problem from, from different lenses, right? One was like, uh, honoring, um, sort of my ancestry and the family that has come before me. And then the other poem was sort of asking myself these questions about what it would mean to create a legacy of my own um and so I was just so glad that Carla selected the poem devotion which I wrote um you know obviously to backtrack we should I I always want to make sure people understand that it's important not to conflate the speaker and the poet um, but the, the speaker in that poem is very close to me and I do write my poems out of lived experience, but recently I saw on Twitter, someone said, um, something about like this, the speaker isn't the poet, but it's the poet's imagination, which I thought was a really wonderful way to sort of solve that problem of not mm-hmm. conflating the, the speaker and the poet. But anyway, um, so I, I had written that poem when I was last in Brazil, which was for my, my brother's wedding. And, um, we were staying in, in my grandma's house, my vovos. And, um, I just sort of had this very surreal experience of, I, I don't sleep well. I have terrible insomnia. So I was up really early in the morning and it was dark and, um, you know, whether or not it's true, (laughs) my, my grandma sort of, um, like a lot of Brazilians is always obsessed with quote unquote safety. And, um, so I, you know, I was up very early in the morning and I was looking out through random bars, um, which everything, if you're from Brazil, you know, uh, there are always bars everywhere. Um, and so I had this very surreal experience of like being sort of half in and out of sleep. And, um, anyway, there, there was, there were all these stray dogs everywhere, which if you're from Central or South America, you're familiar with. And so the poem kind of came out of that sort of like haunted time of the morning, you know, the witching hour or whatever, and um, trying to navigate also that that eeriness, that feeling my, my ancestors around me, you know, in the photographs in my grandmother's house. Um, 
and and also you know in thinking about what it means to be faithful to have faith um because my my grandmother is incredibly devoutly catholic and she's very um devoutly catholic in a very sanitized way so um you know catholicism in brazil is a little different um you know because brazil had uh brazil participated in the slave trade very heavily so um catholicism in brazil is also informed by like indigenous beliefs Mm. in african beliefs um but my grandmother's catholicism is that very sanitized kind of white um you know it's it's a catholicism that's that's removed from that (laughs) that that's removed from where we come from and what we come out of because my family's um roots on my Brazilian side are indigenous. I I don't claim that obviously because of the way that I look phenotypically, I think would be um, unfair for me to claim that it would be dangerous for me to claim that but that is my my father's family. Um, So anyway, that that poem is just really about ancestry. It's about um, how as people who have been separated from their own ancestry for for a variety of reasons for me it's the way that I look it's where I live it's the language that I now speak more comfortably than the language that I grew up speaking it's so many things right as displaced people there are so many layers to our displacement but um so that poem for me was was reaching for an understanding like almost trying to insert like insert myself into my grandmother's home more comfortably um as someone who is you know a lot more radical than than my brazilian family and and honestly my american family (laughs) so i i think that that poem to circle back to your question roy i think that that poem is really maybe most at home in the anthology and i'm so glad carla picked it because it's tr- it's almost taking on a lot of the same work that the anthology is, um, or at least in my mind that the anthology mm-hmm. is, because it's trying to, it's grappling those like larger questions of displacement, of, um, you know, the legacy of violence that we're both implicated in and separated by as displaced bodies, as displaced people. Um, you know, even when even your faith can be a violence, you know, it, it really adds um, a discomfort to mm-hmm. to trying to feel at home, which is what we're always trying to do to trying to, you know, to have a more tender relationship with, um, with ourselves and our families and where we come from. But there's always that interruption of like, well, but wait, if we think beyond that, then, you know, then there's always there's always a problem for poets. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's that's what that poem is. It's it's trying to carve tenderness in spite of the fact that tenderness is is there's always that problem lurking behind it. Um and I think that's what the anthology is. We're trying to carve out a tender space. We're trying to, you know, um reach back to an ancestral presence in order to navigate a way forward. We're trying to, um, you know, all join arms together and speak out against something that's really atrocious. But as we do that, we have to be aware of the like our own personal complications that we bring. 
Um, and so I, I don't know. I always have such a hard time <laughs> talking about my poems, but I, I think that that's the way that it fits into the anthology. And I think it, it's very much in line with the project that Carla had sort of in a larger sense. Um, and then too, it was really important to me when looking at poems by the other poets that we um, took on work that was invested in that. And I also was really very um, adamant about including voices that were maybe less quote unquote established because, you know, I'm not an established poet by any means myself. I write poetry. Um, I don't have an MFA. I only recently started publishing a few years ago. So I was incredibly honored that Carla asked me to take take on this work with her. Um, you know, and I also wanted to be able to reach reach out and uplift other people who are who are like me, um, still really trying to to find that space in this sort of poetry world themselves. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um and I feel like that was that was a major goal of the anthology is you know, we while we sent out the call uh, to poets, uh, we like to poets that we already knew. We also wanted uh, going into it to to find new work, to find poets who we haven't heard of yet, to find poets who don't have books out yet, who haven't done an MFA. Um, that was that was really really important to me, um, and so like honestly, going into the anthology itself while while we sent out the call to people who we thought might be interested, um, the vast majority of the poems themselves were uh, un unsolicited. Like, so to be clear, uh, the poems that like I reached out to poets and, and asked them for their poets include my student, <laughs> uh, Wendy Trevino for her sonnet, uh, where she talks about, uh, Oh goodness gracious, I'm now forgetting the exact line, um, but it's so beautiful where she talks about the border essentially being a cruel fiction, as is the name of her book. Uh, Barbara Jane Reyes's poem, Wisdom's Rebuke, uh, where we get the title of our anthology, uh, Fuck Your Tender Fences and Applause. Um, and Craig Santos Perez's poem, Peace Borders. All of the other poems in the anthology um that were sent into us by folks and uh there was no guarantee that we were going to publish them like uh and so it did it definitely uh it was interesting to receive some some poems from like poetry like heroes that i knew of from like beforehand and be like okay this actually doesn't really fit <laughs> for our anthology and i think really you know something that that kim and marina um you know, were able to, to work together with me on in the selection process is that really our goal is not just repeating the same names that we've seen before, um, just bringing out voices that haven't been heard yet and that deserve to be heard. Uh, there were a lot of poets uh, in our anthology um, who do not yet have a book out. Uh, so we have Jiyun Yun, uh, uh, Bailey Cohen, uh, Lauren Licona, uh, these are all like really incredible poets um, who, uh, Aileen Mello, who's also one of the uh, poets who received the Undocu Poets uh, Fellowship. Um, 
And she's Brazilian. Shout out. <laughs> An incredible. One of my students was uh, was studying her uh, for their independent study poet project, and it was it was wonderful. Janelle Pineda, a Salvadoran poet. Like we just wanted to bring in like as many voices as we could uh, that like kind of spoke to this idea of of really like no no tender fences. Part of why. Uh, uh, I ended up like proposing that that title, um, like while we were like brainstorming a bunch of different titles, is because you know we often see um, like white establishments kind of putting out like, oh, here's our token poets of color spotlight. <laughs> you know, here they are. And that's really what Barbara Jane Reyes's poem speaks out against. When she says, "Fucking under fences and applause." Um, what I what I'm arguing in, in my editor's letter at the at the end of the book is like there are no there are no fences that are that are tender. Uh, what we need to work towards instead is what what Santos Perez discusses in his poem. This idea of like let us build a tender country. Um, for me, that that is the community garden where we can have something that is unfenced and and open to all, and where where poets of color and queer poets. Um, they're not just there for display. They are the backbone of the project. They, they are they are what matters. They are not just a spotlight feature. Um, like this is this is what we should be reading all of the time. And goodness, I forget the name of the poet who mentioned this, uh, and because it was something that I believe she posted on on, on Twitter. So there's no, <laughs> if she deactivated her account or something, there's there's no way to track this quote, but she talked about this idea of like uh, white reviewers upon looking at books by poets of color often say things, and I've definitely been guilty of this too in the past of saying things like, oh, this is such necessary work. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, brave exclamation oh, point. Raw, visceral. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know. And so like, for me, like, and, and what the poet said really resonated with me. And I, I, I'm going to track them down sooner or later to thank them for saying this. Um, but they mentioned this idea of like, we shouldn't be calling the work necessary, we should be calling the listening necessary. The listening <clears throat> is what is essential. That like readers have a necessity, especially readers who do not share our identities, have a necessity to listen. Um, and so I think that, I mean, there's, there's so much more I could say on that, but I, I do not want to ramble. And I'm also terrible at speaking as opposed to writing. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think just to kind of sum all of that up is just trying to create a poetry anthology that is not meant to be a fencing in of poets of color uh, for display for a white audience. Uh, I, I put Barbara Jane Reyes's poem at, at the front uh, because I wanted it to really act as a, as a rebuke to a white audience who would come into the book expecting some kind of inspiration porn. Um, <laughs> what I wanted them to do, and as I often tell my students in class, um, you know, I, I want everyone to feel safe, but we need to be able to have uncomfortable conversations. And that was really the goal of the anthology, is to create a safe space for, for immigrant writers 
while also making uncomfortable all of us who are in who are complicit in the violence against immigrants. Um, and that that is the end of my long rant. <laughs> <laughs> no, just to just to touch on that too, Carla. I think that one of the anthologies, uh, well, one of its greatest sources of power is that um, its expansiveness. I was really touched and blown away and awestruck by just the response that we received mm -hmm. for our call for submissions and the fact that the anthology is over a hundred pages long, um, not only is a testament to um, just how many incredible poems we received and the volume of submissions that we were so impressed and honored by, but also um, is it is that rebuke, like the mm -hmm. just the sheer amount of real estate of space that we're taking up with the anthology is part of its power because we're not um to borrow carla's metaphor we're not creating any kind of fence in or um you know any kind of corralled or relegated space for maybe one particular project rather because it's such a large undertaking um in its scope in like its actual mm -hmm. physical being um in so many ways we're i think that's almost the rebuke itself too mm -hmm. that it is it is taking up space for you know for people for whom it's often difficult to take up space for um and i think that's i think that's really powerful and i'm very proud of us that we were able to do that um to put out carla what is the page count 140 something oh my gosh let me let me double check i still have it on my on my desktop <laughs> <laughs> i don't have my laptop oh. in front of me but just that we yeah. were you know that we were able to put out literally a volume of work is so powerful to me um because it almost like blows up any kind of limitations yes. that would be would be placed sure, on it too. it's it's over over 200 pages um, <laughs> um dang here i am selling a short we're over no, 200 no, no, i mean i think that's really the goal is is really like being a rebuke and I, you say it so perfectly kim but like it's it's a it's a rebuke against like the false scarcity uh yeah. that kind of, oh, like no, models yeah. like capitalist structures in like a lot of like poetry literary establishments and it's like you know I think what we have today is an abundance of incredible, extraordinary writers. Um, and a lot of times uh, the way poetry world is structured is with the goal of keeping people out. Um, and I, what I like about the anthology and what, what you are, t what, what you say so beautifully is that, you know, we are, we are not, we're not, trying to create something small we're trying to create something expansive you say it way better than i did i'm just like <laughs> no thank you for thank you for condensing what i was no, no, no. It's no, always a necessary undertaking <laughs> but to um carla mentioned that we had a lot of poets without without books um you know i'm a poet without books but i also want to stress that anthology also was a space where people were able to publish for the first time and that's something that I thought, um, you know, some, someone took a chance on me, a poet without an MFA, um, a poet who writes poems that are very different from, you know, what we 
what get published in those mm-hmm. big name journals or whatever. Um, and so I wanted to sort of offer someone else that same opportunity. And that's to another thing that I'm most proud of about the anthology is we have um, more than a handful of poets for whom the anthology is their first publication and how incredible that is to see that just that mix of experiences mm-hmm. in like inside the anthology. Um, I think that's, you know, I'm really proud that we were able to do that work. Also, I was, you know, here's my poem next to my literal literary heroes and also some just mm-hmm. really incredible um, voices that we're seeing for the first time. And I'm, I'm so proud that that's going to be just, a, you know, a jumping off point. Absolutely. Yeah, well, maybe, well, first off, I guess maybe a good thing to say, too, is that people can buy this for like $10 and the proceeds go to Raices. So and, it's currently currently fifteen dollars. Sorry. Oh, that's right. No, sorry. I can't. Um, <laughs> sorry. Okay. Um, and it's actually Roy. Sorry to 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 cut you off. We're actually in the like final ten days where it's going to be available online as a PDF. We are hoping uh, right now, and Marina is the one who's kind of the lead on this. We're hoping to get this to turn into a print version. Really, my goal is to get donations out across the country with whatever press we work with to get get these books in libraries in schools and in prisons um in order to make the book continue to be as accessible as possible um so that's that's kind of our our goal uh in 2020 um is seeing this turn into into a print thing but it is still available online as a pdf um for the next 10 days. Yeah. So sorry, sorry to cut you off. I just wanted to explain that. <laughs> oh, no, I wanted to make sure we mentioned that. So no, thank you for saying that. I just wanted to. And 100% of the proceeds yeah. are going um, to Racist Texas. So um, Racist does a lot of really on the ground work with immigrant families in crisis, um, immigrant and migrant families in crisis. And so all, you know, $15 for every purchase of the anthology does go directly to racist. And Carla, I think we're getting close to $2,000. You're, we're very close. I have to double check. Um, I, I need to log into my Gumroad account. Um, but yeah, we're getting, we're close to $2,000 right now that we've raised. I, I'd love to see us reach uh, 2000 by the new year. So if you are listening and you're interested, you can go to gumroad.com slash cs ferreira 08 if you're wondering how to spell ferreira (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you are probably not portuguese or brazilian like kim and i (laughs) (laughs) um so ferreira uh is f-e-r-r-e-i-r-a yes the i before e rule is like absolutely screwed over in portuguese um as are so many rules. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so yeah, and it's still gonna be it's still gonna be available online um, until the end of the month, and then our goal uh, is seeing it put into print. But we are, um, and I've I've been speaking uh, to Marina about this as well because uh, she's kind of taken the lead in terms of like the the print translation. Uh, we want to work uh, with a small like indie press company. Uh, that will commit to making sure that everything past the production costs of the book 
um, all of that profit will go directly to Daises um, and other immigrant rights groups that that we vet for. Um, so that's that's the goal, really, is that even even when it goes into print, we want it uh, to continue raising money uh, for folks who, like Kim was saying, are doing work on the ground uh, to help immigrant families and migrant families in crisis. Um, Oh, Carla, did we lose you again? No, no, you did not. Sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> you were just done talking. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I feel like I there should be like a code word or something. I like do some poetry snaps at the end of my rants. <laughs> Roy, would it be a good idea? Maybe Carla and I can each read a poem from the anthology. Oh, for sure. Do you, that's a good idea. Yeah. Ooh. Oh, my goodness, Kim. That's an awesome idea. Okay, I'm going to pull it up. Let's see. Um, while I'm maybe making a, a selection, do you have any, any other points you want to touch on, Carla? Um, no, I, I'm just choosing, I'm looking at the poems and I think, I think I know the one I'm going to choose, uh, obviously biased. I'm going to choose the poem that my former ELD student wrote oh. <laughs> with my, with my terrible Spanish. Um, so I'll, I'll play this, uh, podcast for my ELD students and they can, uh, <laughs> making fun of me <laughs> um i've been i've been trying to teach myself spanish the interesting thing about speaking portuguese and trying to learn spanish is that it all it all becomes this crazy soup of <laughs> oh, i have an i have a, a really hard time um i i can understand spanish yeah. proficiently but when yeah. i try and speak spanish i will end up speaking portuguese oh, oh, which yeah. is funny because then at home when i'm trying to speak Portuguese, I'll end up speaking Spanish. <laughs> yes, no, abs absolutely. Every once in a while, I'll be speaking with my ELD students and I'll uh, try to code switch into Spanish depending on the situation. And um, definitely some Portuguese words will come out and they're like, miss. <laughs> um, but yeah. <laughs> the other day, I, I was even talking to a coworker and I, I couldn't remember for the life of me, forgot. So I ended up saying yo oublié, which is like Spanish oh, and French. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Yeah, it's a, dis amazing. a disaster. It's um, language is, is messy and wonderful. And As okay, well, yeah, Carla, yeah. you can go first because I'm still, I'm still yeah, choosing. Yeah, go for it. That is, that is totally okay. Yeah, I'm going to be a proud mama teacher <laughs> um, and read this poem. Uh, this is David Garcia's first uh, poetry publication. As Kim mentioned, we have a lot of folks who are choosing, uh, who chose to publish uh, in No Tender Fences as their first publication, and we're incredibly honored by that. Um, David Garcia was an ELD student that I had my very first year of teaching full-time, um, and at the end of the year, uh, he, he had given me this poem to hold on to, um, that he had written following a, a, a brief a brief poetry unit that I had done in my ELD class. Um, when I did the work of the anthology, I, I, I reached out to David again and uh, and I asked him if if I could include it in the anthology. So it's one of the the only four uh, like solicited poems for the anthology. It is called El Inmigrante. Un viaje. Por tierras desconocidas no te hace un desconocido. Te hace entender las cosas. Te hace entender que amas 
a tus seres queridos y los extraños, aunque no están contigo, repito, un viaje por partes del mundo pisando tierras nuevas, el desierto y la naturaleza. No es la muerte, es tu camino. Recuerda de dónde vienes, que ese es tu destino. Um, so thank you to David for writing that, that beautiful poem and apologies for every Spanish speaker uh, <laughs> who got to listen to me read it. Um, as, as a teacher though, just you know, reading that at the end of the school year, um, that, that meant the world to me. It was, it was, really, it was really quite exceptional uh, to, see, to see him write and also to see, um, I'm so proud that he chose, he chose to write in his home language as well. Um, I, I hope that that's something that he, he continues to do. And, and thankfully, you know, as a, as a Salvadoran immigrant, um, there's so many amazing uh, Salvi poets uh, for, for him to continue reading. I know that he's a huge fan of Janelle Pineda, who's also featured in our anthology, uh, Javier Zamora, Christopher Soto. Um, there's a lot of incredible uh, Salvi American poetry. And I hope uh, for, for David, uh, who's very talented, but also very, very humble um, <laughs> and kind of scared of, of, of publishing, um, I, hope, I hope that he continues to put his work out into the world. Um, and I, I, won't, I won't call it necessary, but I will say that it's necessary for us to listen to it. Poetry snap. <laughs> okay, so I made um, my selection. I'm going to read my girl Lauren Latona's poem. Ooh, I love her. Um, <laughs> Lauren is incredible. I know her only through Twitter, and it's funny to circle back to the beginning of our interview. Um, I only know Lauren through Twitter because one of my friends had forwarded me one of her tweets about Paddington Bear. So, <laughs> just That's to continue the Latinx representation of Paddington, uh, Lauren's poem is Flashbulb Memory of an American Girl and Her Abuela, St. Pete Beach, Florida, 2009. My grandmother holds my ankles upright while the rest of my body whelms itself into the Atlantic. The tide makes collision against her waist. I hold my breath. There was a time before expatriation, when Maguez was not yet an ebbing in her chest, when she would come to the beach to watch her brothers skin fish on the dock for a handful of cartels, to watch the men slept beneath the pier, a congregation, their church made from drink and cancion, guiros and gritos spilling out over sun-bleached coquina, as the waves beat against her city of rum and meal, before she stepped onto the border, unborn, and a new name was christened from the Seuss on her back. Now an American girl and her grandmother stand in the Gulf, and the sea is just a mirror I have myself into. My palms scrape the sand for burrowed dinero. My fingers reach out to bless the spire of a conch shell. I do this until my vision blurs 
and my lungs ring into themselves. If there is anything the women in my family it is the strain of reaching. What I mean is, my grandmother stretched herself across the Caribbean so her children could grasp the idea of a love unconquered. Even now, she releases her whole pulls me to the surface. I show her two fists, clenched and full of writhing life. Sand dollars, conchitas, split open mollusks, a girl with no claim and no country. I understand. This is the closest I will ever come to birthright. She grins wide, the same gap between our front teeth, a drawbridge splitting. And what a miraculous thing it is to share distance. She tells me, Ay, Nina, I thought you found something worth leaving this world behind. How long you spent holding your breath. And I wish I could tell her I did. Instead, I offer her this abundance, and we laugh, half sunk in a marginal sea. Thank you. Yeah, thank you uh, both for reading those. Of course. I think um, we just got such wonderful submissions into the anthology. Um, and it was, well, I mean, we had such an intense back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> on, so, on so many of the submissions, which I think only speaks to um, the power that every poem that we received really had. Um, and I'm, I'm just so thankful. Um, thank you, Lauren, for sharing your voice with us. Um, it was, I think, your submission, if you're listening, was one that we really um, did have a, quite a volley on because, <laughs> because the poems were so strong. and. Um, I, I just think that everyone who submitted every submission that we received, even ones that we weren't able to include at the at the anthology, you know, in this iteration, um, were so strong and just out of complete gratitude. I want to thank everyone mm -hmm. who did send us work. Oh, thank you, Kim, for putting that so beautifully. Yeah, I just want to echo everything you said. Slash, I really, I'm excited about two things in the future. I'm excited about uh, Lauren Lacona's first book. Whenever it comes out, I'm going to be there. Um, I'm excited for your first book, slash, I want it to also be on audiobook. You were such a oh. great reader. <laughs> like, holy thank you, shit. thank you. Holy yeah, my uh, actually, my favorite thing about um, sharing poetry is that, to me, um, you know, as poets, we all know sort of what a disaster the submission process is. Yes. So when I have, <laughs> for, for so many reasons, but um, when I have new poems, um, which, you know, now that I'm working on putting a manuscript together, um, I, I do have new poems. Thank you. Uh, but my favorite way to share poems is out loud. And I, I always think that readings are, you know, my favorite way to share poems because they're, well, for one, they're more immediate, right? Mm. Um, rather than continuing to check our submittable cues, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, and and even when poems are accepted, you know, we have to, to, to quote unquote forthcome. But I also just really love um, sharing poems orally, you know, reading mm -hmm. poems out loud that does reach back to um, that, that tradition, you know, for us as immigrants or people from immigrant families, um, you know, our, our families work, come out of oral histories and oral traditions. 
and also it, it's so much more democratic, right? Um, to mm-hmm. think about like what, if we're thinking about Roy's question of what is the function of poetry? Well, there's this misconception that people have that poetry is out elitist. And I think mm-hmm. that that's at, at the fault of poetry now being housed um, sort of almost squarely under the academy. Poetry isn't elitist. Poetry is for a polis, right? Poetry mm-hmm. is for people. And um, one of the things that I think the anthology does is remind people of that. Like there are, um, every one of these poems was written by, you know, by a person with a life experience that's all their own and one that can be shared and should be shared on the page and also out loud. Like, I think it's so important that we read the work of others out loud. I love the, the tradition. Uh, one of my friends and really incredible poet um, who's Afro-Caribbean, Puerto Rican Malcolm Friend, who has just an incredible book out and also an incredible chapbook. Um, he always starts out by reading someone else's poem. And I love that. I love that sort of invitation. It's like an invitation and an invocation both. Um, So that's one thing that I always really stress is like, let's read poems out loud. Let's, you know, I just think that's, that's a powerful way that we can sort of shake, shake things up a little bit. (laughs) Absolutely. Make poetry a little less stale, which it isn't at all. But, you know, again, um, I think one of those misconceptions about poetry. Yeah. I think, I mean, poetry itself is so vibrant, but a lot of the, a lot of the institutions that kind of currently have their claws in it are, are a bit stale. Um, but like, yeah, as, as you said, I, I love, I love what your, your friend, uh, is their name Malcolm Friend, actually? Yes, Malcolm Friend. <laughs> their their Twitter handle is Friendly Poet, and he is. Malcolm has like a... I, so. love, I love what Malcolm Friend said about reading others' poems at your poetry reading. I think it's a really... Um, I think it's a really essential... Like, if you, if you have, like, the time to do so, um, or if you can make the time to do so whenever you have a reading, like, that's a really powerful way of making sure that other voices are being included. Um, yeah, I, I really love that. Um, so th- thank you for, thank you for sharing that, Kim. Of course, and I'm glad we got to read two poems from the anthology, too. Yeah. Yeah, that was good. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess, um, is there anything else you, either of you wanted to talk about? Mm. Carla, do you want to talk about your um, any of your experience as um, a Portuguese American or your family history at all? Roy, is that useful for you? If we talk about we can our background, do that for sure. Yeah. 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 I sure I can I can talk about it um, a, a little bit. I'll try to be I'll try to be more concise than I've been. <laughs> um, yeah. Both 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 of my parents. Um, both my parents are, are Portuguese immigrants. Uh, they actually are from cities not too far from each other in Portugal, but they met in the United States. Um, it's a very uh, Newark, New Jersey, ironbound kind of story. <laughs> um, and my dad immigrated when he was 14 years old. Um, and so actually around the age of a lot of my um, ELD are English language learner students. Um, so it's kind of something keep in mind when I'm teaching them. Um, and my mom was about eight. And 
Yeah, they, I mean, at the time in which they immigrated, uh, Salazar uh, was still the dictator of Portugal. Um, it's it's called by some historians uh, a benevolent dictatorship. I'm putting that in air quotes because um, no dictatorships are benevolent. Um, you know, plenty, plenty of people died uh, during his regime. Uh, it was very difficult for a lot of families uh, in terms of being able to have any kind of uh, political dissent. Um, my, my grandfather, my dad's dad, uh, José, uh, actually would write articles in the local newspaper um, criticizing the regime. <laughs> um, and again, to go back to what Kim was saying, this idea of writing being controlled by the academy, um, my, my grandfather was someone who did not have very much education. I, I believe he might've completed up until fourth grade, which was considered pretty standard at the time. Um, probably the equivalent of what, like what we would consider a high school education today. Um, so he would write these articles dissenting against the dictatorship. And, and once uh, the uh, secret police uh, or PID, which was the dictatorship's enforcement arm, um, actually showed up at his arm <laughs> uh, with a warrant for his arrest. The rest of the story, like who knows how much of it is true. Uh, it's It's been passed on through the generations. Um, and he, he like told Pete to like get off of his farm. Somehow my grandfather was like not imprisoned. Um, but we, we definitely know people, uh, who were connected to our families on both sides who ended up dealing with, unfortunately, um, some brutality at, at the, at the hands of the, of the dictatorship secret police force, uh, for trying to resist the government. Um, so yeah, then my, my parents, my parents immigrated at, you know, fairly, fairly young age. My dad immigrated from a small farm in Portugal at 14 to the West Village in the 1960s. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, so kind of kind of an intense, intense culture shock. Um, while he was still here on some kind of student visa, I believe he was illegally drafted by the US government into the Vietnam War. Um, <laughs> you're not supposed to draft people on student visas, I believe, but they drafted him anyway. Um, so, and it was kind of like, well, you're either going to fight or, you know, we can send you back to Portugal. Um, <laughs> and so my, my dad heard that it was a land war. So he, uh, he joined the Navy. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. And so that's, that's kind of, kind of my parents' story. My mom, my mom became the first person in her family to go to college. Uh, she became a teacher. Um, and, uh, my, my dad's dad at, at some point immigrated to New York City. He, he worked as, as a janitor, I believe in the Federal Reserve Bank in New York. And that's actually how my dad was like first able to get a job there, like as some kind of like desk clerk. Um, was actually through through my grandfather being a janitor there and like knowing folks at the bank. Um, and so yeah, that's 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 kind of like the whole <laughs> the whole family history. Um, and it's it's interesting to me today uh, to kind of see the ways in which so many of my family members 
I've forgotten their history. 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 Um, parents, uh, you know, continue to be opposed to the current xenophobia of this president. Um, but I've, I, I've like had to like publicly disown my godmother, uh, who's my first cousin, um, when she came out in support of Trump, which is why whenever I see white people being like, oh, well, you know, sometimes it's hard to speak out against your family. It's just like, well, you know, children are dying. Um, <laughs> you know, have, have those difficult conversations and like, don't be afraid to tell people to go fuck themselves if they're, if they are, if they are pro-fascist. Like that's, that's the thing that goes back to again, like the difference between kindness and niceness. Um, you know, I think that, you know, it is it is a kindness to to always stand on the side of the vulnerable, um, and so definitely today, as someone who, um, you know, is is from an immigrant background but has a significant amount of privilege, given that we are we are white immigrants, um, no matter how many Portuguese folks uh, attempt to pretend to be Latinx, uh, we are not. Uh, we are in fact from the country that colonized Brazil. Um, I think that, you know, with that comes a lot of privilege and, and also on my part, you know, as, as a white American woman who kind of has this duality of coming, coming from, a, from an immigrant family that's, that's very different from a lot of white American families. Um, a lot of my goal really is to listen, um, to listen deeply to people of color, to listen to their experiences and again, it goes back, goes back to my students, um, listening to, to what they have to tell me. And I think also, you know, my, my background growing up in, in Newark, New Jersey, which is, which is a city um, that is heavily of people of color, of immigrants, going to the high school that I, that I went to, which was run by like feminist sons, um, <laughs> which is a whole other story to get into. Um, but it was, it was a majority black and Latina high school. Um, and so I think those experiences really, really shaped me um, before I entered adulthood. And what I what I took away from them was really the importance of recognizing my privilege. Um, and also making sure that whatever privilege I have, I'm using it to amplify voices of color. Um, and just because I come from an immigrant family, it does not give me um, the right or the access to speak on or to speak for people of color, but rather I should, you know, my my goal is is to listen. And and certainly that comes with making mistakes along the way. Um, but I hope that I can always be responsible enough to own up to those mistakes um, and to just continue continue having a conversation where where really the majority of it is is me listening and and not speaking over the voices of people of color, which is something that I try and get into um, in my editor's letter at the end of the anthology. Um, I hope I hope that that's helpful. Uh, I'm sorry that again I, <laughs> that's so rambly, but thank you. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that, Carla. I, I always oh, really yeah, love. Thank you for asking, Kim. <laughs> yeah, no, I I think it's um I think it's important because you know we are coming out of um that was a big impulse for why we why we undertook this project. I think for me. Mm -hmm. um, for me, it was obviously a really personal project, and I really appreciated that for all three of us, it was a really personal project. Um, mm -hmm. Marina actually 
was responsible for the beautiful cover art that we were able to yes. put on the front of the book. So, um, you know, that sort of is even another layer of um, mm. just how personal it was for us that she was able to lend us her her visual art um, that I think, Carla, she created specifically for the anthology, yeah. right? She did. It was gorgeous. <laughs> and she created it for the anthology. Yeah, it's this really amazing kind of like assemblage of um, different different elements that I think really tie in every almost every poem in the anthology. It's it's really wonderful. Which we had the cover before we had made the selections, so it's really funny how things work out that way. <laughs> um, but anyway, just to to talk about my background a little bit. Um, so my dad is Brazilian. Um, he grew up incredibly poor in rural Brazil. Um, so many of my poems are sort of obsessed with this. Carla, Carla had said something interesting in sharing her family history, which is like, well, who, who can say if this is true? Which is so, <laughs> so much of the immigrant experience, right? Because, who, mm -hmm. because we are coming out of oral traditions, because every single immigrant father loves secrets. I mean, yeah. you know, how much, <laughs> how much of our father's lives will we ever really know or understand or have been granted access to um for me that's that's very little right so that's part mm -hmm. of what my poems are obsessed with is here's this man who looms really large in my life because he's my father um but he's someone who I have a complicated experience with because I I don't really understand as much as I understand and love him I don't um understand his life or what what that legacy mm -hmm. means for me but so my my dad immigrated um to the united states with my two brothers in the early 80s for the first time and you know at that time he didn't speak any english he worked um in restaurant kitchens as a dishwasher he you know eventually became a cook and a chef but um so that sort of like is a huge preoccupation of mine because it's something that i'll mm -hmm. i'll never know it's almost like a different a different hymn. Um, and he even, when, when we talk, he even splits his life this way. It's like the first time he immigrated with, with my brothers, which he had with um, his first wife. And then there's like the, the second immigration, <laughs> which mm. would be with, um, with my sister and I. So my, my parents, my mom is uh, white from the United States. She met my dad um, during that first first immigration so that that time in his life um and they met actually it's a, a really uh they have a meet cute right which is disgusting <laughs> <laughs> and I hate it but it's also yes. really great and, and um so my mom was uh, a wine seller and she got uh the legend goes she got a little too drunk drinking wine at the restaurant where my dad worked and so my dad um made her Thai curry and it's like their their meet cute their love story um and so from there they they moved back to Brazil together my dad was in the middle of this really horrible custody battle with his first wife mm. um over my two brothers and um so out of losing custody of his two sons um because of the way that the law was in Brazil um you know my sister and I were born so that's something that I, I am trying to work out in this manuscript is that, um, you know, my, my life, the, my life comes out of my, my dad's like greatest pain. 
um, mm. which was losing his two sons and having to be apart from them, um, literally worlds apart from them. And so that's something that I'm trying, you know, trying to work out with the very small pieces of the story that I have. But um, when I, my sister and I were born in Brazil, we lived in Brazil until I was five or six, and we actually split our time. So we were, we were farm babies. My family's all very rural, but um, my dad worked in the city and I went to school in the city. So we sort of had this, again, like my, my life is all about these sort of split experiences where we lived and I grew up on a farm, um, you know, as a very carefree, ungendered child. Um, but then we also lived in the hotel in the middle of the city that my dad managed. So, um, I sort of had those, both those experiences growing up. And then we immigrated to the United States when I was five in 1996. Um, and we've, I've lived here ever since we were, you know, very poor. So we hardly ever got to go back to Brazil. All of us, my dad would go back every, um, to see my brothers and, you know, the entire half of my family that's there. So um, part of this kind of navigating an immigrant identity and a Latinx identity for me is understanding that um, so much of what I know is not Brazilian. It's, um, it's like, for me, the it's, it's my otherness, right? Like I have, I appreciate all of my Latinx family from Central America who sort of took me in here growing up in Texas. I mean, I, um, you know, I learned Spanglish, not Spanish. And I <laughs> lost a lot of use of Portuguese because we didn't speak it at home. And um, so it's uh, one thing that I really do appreciate about sort of Latinx as an identifier is that it allows us to really explore those complications. Um, and it sort of like picks us all up and... Um, oh, I think a lot of people argue that it conflates and flattens us. But for me, I think inside of that one identifier, Latinx, we're all so different. And we, I think we can really celebrate that. Like um, a, one book that I want to shout out that was really meaningful for me was Daniel Pena's Bang, a novel, which is just this really fantastic um, exploration of cartel violence. And Daniel actually lived... Um, among, you know, cartels and did a lot of investigative journalism to be able to put forward this really incredible novel that he did. But um, it was really powerful for me because there's this one very small moment in the novel that will always stay with me where um, it's just like this one sentence about putting salt on oranges. And it was it was so incredibly meaningful for me because I, you know, I grew up doing that. My dad would slice oranges at you know, at the table with his pocket knife for us, and we would salt them and eat them together. Um, and so those little small shared cultural idiosyncrasies where, okay, here's a, a Mexican-American writer um, writing about putting salt on his oranges, and here I am, a Brazilian-American you know, mm. who grew up putting salt on my oranges. I really appreciate the way that Latinx connects, connects us that way. Um, and I'm so glad to see that we're taking up more space, well, that we're claiming more space, you know, and really um, fighting for more space. And so that more little Latinx kids who didn't hear those, you know, things, who had their friends make fun of them for putting salt on oranges growing up, you know, you just little small things like that are really not small at all. Um, 
And so anyway, um, I think that for me, my, my own sort of background is really about navigating um, displacement. It's also about navigating the difficulties of, um, you know, not feeling at home at, in Brazil and not feeling at home here in the United States either. So, um, yeah, it's been, it's been a really, poetry has really uh, offered me a really generous space to explore that. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. And it's also a lot of work, but also, um, you know, I, I think that the current political moment, um, has really just, I don't know, it's both impeded my poetry and it's also really Mm -hmm. accelerated it, um, when my brother and his wife first came to visit us for Father's Day a few years ago, they were detained at the airport. And my, my brother was separated for hours from his wife who doesn't speak any English and interrogated. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's scary to realize that those, that, that's the reality for, for so many people every day. And we were so privileged and lucky, honestly, that, that they released them. Um, but it was also scary because they weren't, they weren't asking my brother Howney about what they were doing in this country. They were asking him about my dad. Um, Howney said that they, they interrogated him for like three or four hours about my dad's immigration history. Um, and so there's sort of like this, um, the, the nightmare that is being an immigrant in this country goes beyond your status, right? Because um, my dad is he- was here at the time on a green card because he's married to my mom, but you can still be on some kind of government watch list in spite of this. So um, I really am so, to bring it back to the anthology, I'm really grateful that we were able to bring in um, voices that acknowledge this too, right? That we can all have different, backgrounds. Carla and I have a lot of overlap in our stories, but our backgrounds are uh, very different. I love that both of our dads are named Tony. (laughs) I love that that both of our Tonys are, you know, are farmers. Um, I love that so much. You know, my dad obviously moved from very small rural community in Brazil where he grew up playing barefoot soccer to to Austin Uh, in the 80s, which is just as much of a a culture shock maybe <laughs> as as moving to you know um the liberal bastion that was where did you say the west village the in west new york village. yeah, yeah karma for sure. <laughs> but I, I love that we can that the anthology gives us a space where we explore those parallels while also really highlighting our differences right like yeah. Car- carla's portuguese i'm brazilian marina is also portuguese um so we we come from worlds that are so so different and from two very you know two very sides two very different sides of an experience in spite of the fact that we speak the same language and Mm -hmm. um I I appreciate that so much about the anthology is like yes we are all undertaking this work of tending to a community garden together as immigrants and as first generation Americans but we're also all speaking our differences. Mm-hmm. And yes. um, I just, I love that so much because I think that, um, you know, where else do we really, where else do we really find that? I don't, I don't know. Carly, you, you talked about how 
difficult it is to see, um, you know, white institutions sort of um, making a show of holding up uh, voices that are perhaps normally othered. Um, but mm-hmm. that, but then it ends, right? Then the, yeah. <laughs> it ends after a certain issue or a certain effort or whatever. Um, I don't really see the work in that we've mm-hmm. undertaken in the anthology. I don't see that ending really hope you know we it's something that i think sort of reaches out rather than um looking in more absolutely i mean that's that's the goal of the anthology is not just being like one final project but hopefully inspiring others to like continue the work um yeah and i'm glad i'm i'm glad that you talked that you talked that you talked about talked about bringing together like disparate experiences um it actually reminds me of what one of my students said in a Socratic seminar this week. Uh, they talked about, um, you know, they, they actually asked Roy's question during the Socratic seminar, like, what is the purpose of poetry? Um, right. Why, yeah. <laughs> why poetry? Like, what does it actually do? And one of the students um, really beautifully said, you know, poetry resists uh, things being homogenous. Poetry resists things being like making all experiences same and that's what I really love about the anthology and I think Kim you did a great job of explaining that is that like we we allow for conflict we allow for differing experiences and we are united as you said in this idea of tending to our community um but what I like about it is this idea that that community does not mean one identity nor does it mean uh, the tokenizing of otherized identities, you know, just for one day only, and then like that's it. Like that's that's really not not our goal. Um, yeah, I love that your student said that, Carla. Oh my gosh, you're so smart. <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna start talking about them again, or else it's gonna be all day. <laughs> but like, uh, yeah, they're. Um, I feel like you know, teaching teaching uh, English and and writing poetry. Doing doing both of those together while incredibly difficult uh, to to balance both, um, I I become a better reader and a better writer um, because of the ways that my my students are engaging are engaging with poetry and and with literature in general. Like they're so they can be so uh, critical in the best way of like even the curricular choices that are made in a way that I wish uh, particularly other white teachers. Uh, would be critical of it. Um, <laughs> a, a lot of times, I, I I will never forget the time that I was advocating for more books by authors of color in our freshman curriculum, and uh, a teacher responded, "Oh, well, it's already really diverse." And I was like, "It's not really. We have majority white male authors," um, and they were like. Uh, well, no. What about Enrique's journey? <laughs> it's just like that's one fucking book. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, don't do that. Like, what about Enrique? I was just like, oh god, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm, and I, I'm grateful in general. You know, my my for my colleagues who are who are very thoughtful and responsive, and like, I learn a lot from them. But like, that was just one of those moments where I was just like, I can't. I was so angry, like I couldn't even respond to the moment. I was just like, took a breath, and it was like, 
you saying we have Enrique's journey is the problem. <laughs> um, but yeah. Oh, goodness. Um, well, maybe a good question to ask is like, um, you, since you like self-published this, like because of, you know, the staleness of so many of the literary institutions, like, like yeah. what would your advice be to people who want to do this kind of work like that you both did? Hmm. Do you want to go first, Kim? Um, I just want to go there. Yeah. I'll, I'll start. I think that, um, like in regards to self-publishing, I think that it, it's, um, hmm. Carla, Marina and I, so we were all balancing, um, like the lived experience of having to work a full-time job that has mm -hmm. really, you know, nothing to do with poetry. <laughs> uh, Carla, I think is, um, able to incorporate poetry into her work so well and so meaningfully and that's such a wonderful thing for me that's not what I do for um, mm -hmm. my day job so uh, one thing that I would just encourage people to do is um, I think there's a misconception online um, especially you know in poetry Twitter um, <laughs> working class people are poets too um, you know, it's not any kind of twee or cutesy or fun, um, public interest story when working class people write poems that those poets and poems are just as valid. Um, so I would encourage anyone who, you know, does not necessarily work a desk job or even someone who does work a desk job, any, um, anyone can write poems. I think that's important. I think that anyone can take on a kind of project like this. Um, hopefully what we can do with our experiences make it easier for the next person who does uh, something mm -hmm. like this. Um, but there, I cannot oversell enough what an amazing resource and um, sort of like connective tissue the internet is. Um, for me, for me, Twitter is an incredible platform for connecting to other writers and other artists. And Carla and I would not have been able to put this together if we hadn't have met on that platform. So I would really encourage um, anybody like looking to take on this kind of project to, you know, travel the web. Um, <laughs> and it's a, it's a great way too for displaced people, for radical people mm -hmm. to make connections, to put ideas across. And also just to um, say, fuck the state, you know, like, mm -hmm. which is what this project does, too. Um, and so I would uh, definitely have a clear vision in mind. I think um, Carla, Marina, and I were all very lucky in that we were able to communicate to each other re really clearly what our visions were. And, um, you know, our vision for the anthology was all housed under the same kind of larger idea, but we had as three different people, um, three different ideas of how that was going to come across, you know? And so, um, in addition to not being afraid or shying from making those connections on the internet to, um, rethinking about who we consider poets, um, talking about working, working class people, people who, you know, have maybe not even taken an MFA workshop, people who MFA is um I think that those two pieces of advice would be my bigger sort of larger um generally with respect to poetry <laughs> I'm always preaching those things but in terms of self-publishing anything um 
you know, don't be afraid to use the greatest tool that we all have, which is the the internet, right? Like <laughs> go to your go to your public library, um, do as much research as you can, read as much as you can. At the end of the day, Carla and Marina and I were able to put this together because we're readers more so than we're writers. Um, so to be able to take in something critically uh, as a reader is the best tool that you have as a writer, right? I wouldn't call myself a poet if I only wrote poems. So much more of the work of being a poet is reading poems and understanding sort of what poetry is at this very moment. It's irresponsible to be a poet and not read or not understand the tradition that you're either working under or pushing back against or both. Um, so th that's another, like, I can't stress that enough. It's really important to read. Um, read widely. I hate that expression. Um, <laughs> but, you know, read, read poems that you don't like. Um, think about why you don't like them. Uh, for me, I freaking hate language poetry. Um, but, <laughs> like, for, for, for so many reasons. But language poetry can also teach me um, some things. Uh, it can, you know, everything is an, a tool that you can put in your little kit. Um, and the more you read, the more tools you add to your kit, the more stuff you read that you resist, um, the better equipped that you are to talk critically about it, but then also to, to use its own tools against it, right? Um, so yeah. I think I think all of that is important to keep in mind when you start a project. Like you can't, Carla has said this so many times, it's not something, I think we, sometimes as poets, our lives seem so insular and maybe because mm -hmm. poets all share, um, or many poets all share a, a certain type of personality where we almost insulate ourselves. Um, but as Carla has said so many times, it's not something that we wanted to do alone. And so I would, I would also stress that to anybody who is taking on any kind of self-publishing. Um, you don't, don't do it alone, whether or not you're like editing it alone, uh, designing it alone. Um, all of those things are fine to, you know, to actually sit down in front of your computer and do alone. But as far as the greater undertaking, it, it, I don't feel like it, it's responsible to do alone. I think um, Carla and I, would really have floundered if we had tried to take anything on like this alone. I know that for me, it was such a gift to have Christopher Soto reach out about writers for migrant justice because I was trying to put together um, a benefit reading myself and it really wasn't going anywhere because I, I had self insulated and was trying, you know, to, to make something happen on my own. Whereas once Christopher reached out, um, and to be able to start understanding their vision um, and the other organizers' vision, I think it really helped me actually actualize something, you know, whereas before it was something that on my own would have been much more difficult to achieve. So I, I, I don't know if any of, <laughs> any of that came across, but um, I think that because this was a, a community project, um, from the start, that's my, my biggest piece of advice is, you know, use every tool in your kit, make as many connections as you can. Um, don't like the internet. We literally all have it in our pockets 24 seven. Um, that's 
our, our biggest tool as writers. Like, don't listen to people who um, try and make it about, you know, um, any kind of old ways of accessing information. Like, it's amazing to be a writer today, an editor today, and have 12 different tabs open of 12 different <laughs> Google searches for one poem. And um, so, you know, to be able to read any number of the submissions that we had for the anthology and have to have to Google things is wonderful because that's my my world getting a little bigger every Google search, you know. Um, so I would just really encourage all three of those points. I don't I don't know if that's actually necessarily practical because Carla what Carla can perhaps offer more like logistical advice because she did take on so much more of the actual um, building of the anthology. So I think Carla, maybe you can offer more self-publishing advice on like the nitty gritty level. But I would just say that for me, those are, that's the best advice that I can offer is um, both in terms of self-publishing and also just in being a poet or a writer or an artist in any way today is um, you can't do that responsibly without doing any one of those things. Yeah. I just want to echo firstly, everything uh, that, Kim said in terms of working in community like that was all perfect advice Kim um and I think I think you put it um better than I could have <laughs> better than I could have uh like put it um yeah I think just to just to reiterate Kim's point like when I started thinking about the anthology I I felt like like as as like a person with a very specific experience. It, it did not make sense. My goal was to uplift the voices of immigrants for it to be something done by one editor. Um, and so, as Kim said, if I had been trying to do this alone, um, it would not have been nearly as meaningful. Uh, I think it, the project definitely would have foundered. Um, there were so many different moments in the experience of putting this together where you know, I had to uh, had to lean on Kim's shoulder. I had to lean on Marina's shoulder, and I think we really, um, we all we all work together um, in such a way that if any of us had been doing it alone, it wouldn't have been possible. Um, so I really think, you know, in terms of self publishing, like think about who is your audience, who are you speaking to, uh, who do you want to include. Um, and then, you know, from there, really surround yourself with people that you trust, people that you admire, even people that you might disagree with, but that the disagreement can be, can be healthy and productive. Um, and like, I think that was really, that was really the gift of working with two co-editors who are, who are amazing poets, um, and who are amazing people, um, and who were able to to kind of help me in terms of like things that I would not have seen, uh, but Marina and Kim were able to see. So if you are going into the process of, I think in particular, creating an anthology, um, it's so it's so helpful uh, to surround yourself, you know, with people who um, who are willing to do the work, um, which is substantial. Um, Kim and Marina took on a lot. Uh, to make this happen, um, but also people uh, with whom you can have. I mean, honestly, by the end by the end of our work with the anthology, I felt um, at least at least in my in my heart, I felt like Kim and Marina were like 
extended sisters to me as as an only child. I don't have any siblings, um, but I'm very grateful for my for my sisters, um, for my sisters in work and in action. And I feel I feel that way about Kim and Marina both. Um, and that's really that's really the beauty of it of of doing any kind of this this work. It's not about self promotion. Um, it's about what can we build together. Um, in terms of the nitty gritty, um, <laughs> uh, if you're if you're undertaking uh, a project like this, like where you're going to create a book of other people's work, uh, it's not your own uh, poetry, but you're putting together other other work, and it's going to be only two hundred pages. Um, <laughs> please make sure that like you have enough time to do it. I think that's really the the hard thing about it, um, and it's is so difficult in terms of uh, of self-publishing. I mean, the month of September uh, for me was kind of a mess. Um, I, I was I was going through a terrible toothache that led to a root canal. So like I was going through terrible headaches the entire time I was working um, and also working full time. Uh, my prescription for my antidepressants had run out. Um, so my mental health was not great either during that time. Um, and led to a mental health crisis in October. I don't want anyone to like experience that in their experience of creating an anthology. And like, if I had to do it all over again, I, I absolutely would. I would just do so with perhaps um, a little bit more like kindness to myself, I think, uh, and kindness to, to my co-editors as well in terms of like, I think I tried to like, Oh man, just like I didn't I didn't entirely know how to organize everything because I was doing it for the first time. Um and so I was trying to get everything done by these crazy deadlines. Um I think in the future just kind of like accepting like yeah, the cra the crazy deadlines are not going to work. Um and the you know, my mental health and my physical health are probably more important than that. So I would encourage that of folks who who do want to go into self-publishing anything that is kind of of this magnitude that involves coordinating with like 50 plus poets uh for over 200 pages um if if you are going to do something like that recognize that it's going to take time i mean folks who do that as their full-time job can take like a year to produce what we ended up producing over a summer um and you know i I think during that time I was deeply self-critical of myself. I was I was questioning every move that I was making and and feeling like I was making a thousand mistakes. I'm really grateful to Kim and Marina for just being so encouraging during that time. Um and I I would say to anyone who wants to take on the work, like the work will not be perfect. Um and that is okay and be be kind to yourself, be gentle to yourself. Um, you know, one of my friends who was reading through the anthology and looked at my my introduction, uh, you know, where I'm thinking about teachers who might use this in the classroom, and I and I ask folks, you know, please be compassionate to yourself and to your readers, you know, since you are engaging with some works that that do contain trauma. Um, and my friend said to me, Well, you're asking your your readers to be compassionate to themselves, like are you being compassionate to yourself as an editor? <laughs> um, and 
that's what I would I would really argue for if you if you take on a project that is this intense. Like recognize that there are going to be hiccups along the way. There are going to be uh, delays that you wouldn't anticipate. That's all part of the work. It shouldn't stop you from doing the work anyway. Um, you should still still try for it. Still and like reach out. You know, reach out to folks like me and like Kim and Marina and other folks who have done. Uh, work like this before and editors who are willing to to help you with it like reach out to us and ask ask the questions that will inevitably pop up um along the way uh because yeah there will there will be things that you won't anticipate that will happen um and it might be discouraging but honestly like you know for me and i write about this a little bit in my editor's letter um, when I was thinking about just like how much work was going into this anthology, I'm thinking also about how much work ICE and CBP are putting into their jobs to harm immigrants, to abuse humans, to create the violence. I mean, that's one of the things that the violence that that is created by ICE and CBP is not um, just only spontaneous it is planned and organized and coordinated. And so I felt like, well, if they're going to be doing all of this work, I need to work twice as hard to try and counter this in whatever way I can. Um, so yeah, that was kind of like, you know, even when I felt exhausted, that was, that was the fire uh, that, you know, kind of kept me going thinking about like, well, you know, no, these, these organizations, you know, that are incredibly well-funded, by our own taxpayer dollars, um, you know, to to harm and harass immigrants. Well, they're working very hard. Uh, you know, fuck them. I'm going to work twice as hard. And again, all of that work would have been for nothing if I did not have uh, a co-editor in Kim and an assistant editor in Marina that were basically, you know, they were they were my sisters. Uh, they were my sisters in work. Um, sorry, that's incredibly, I feel like I didn't actually go super into the nitty gritty, um, <laughs> for the nitty gritty, uh, you know, learning, learning how to do book design, uh, is helpful. <laughs> I, I, I taught myself how to, uh, design via Canva was the program that I used. I'm not, uh, necessarily advertising them because it was incredibly difficult uh, because whenever I would copy and paste poems, it would undo uh, a lot of line breaks, italics, etc. That, that, that takes a lot of time to redo yourself. So perhaps other folks out there who have self-published might know of a better uh, book design program, uh, but definitely scheduling out the time that you need to make things happen, expecting delays, being gentle on yourself and learning book design. Uh, those are all, those are, those are my, uh, in addition to, I think the most important thing, surrounding yourself with, with meaningful community. Uh, so I guess that's five. Those are, my, those are my five, my five tips for doing this. And wow, I think that was like the longest rant. <laughs> no, but I'm Poetry so glad, snaps, I'm so I'm glad done. you did say that. <laughs> Carla, because one of the important things about not undertaking work alone, and, and this happened for all three of I just wanted to say, um, Carla, I'm so glad you said that because I, I was waiting for you to finish so I could, I could say that too. Um, it, you know, it wasn't just you. Real life happened for all three of us. 
Um, I think that this has been an incredibly difficult year for so many people. And um, one of the things that, that being a team allowed us to do was work with like the ebbs and flows of, of real life getting in the way because we're three poets who, um, you know, we're three working poets. We're three poets without institutional support. And this was a project that we took on at a really accelerated pace because um, of, like you said, Carla, what we were pushing, pushing back against. Um, so I, I appreciated you saying that, Carla, because part of what, what I think I would suggest and for, for, um, for that reason is that real life will get in the way and you have to be working with, um, with people who will be generous and gentle with you um, and supportive of you when that does happen. So I can't stress enough. Um, Carla says she's having some trouble here. The struggle for us was that because we were working at such an accelerated pace, um, because this was a project that we really um, felt like we needed to put out quickly in response to um, state-sanctioned violence against immigrant and migrant communities, um, was perhaps that there was a lot of... Um, learning while doing and um, things were not maybe as organized as they could have been. Um, but what sort of kept us all in it was that we were communicating with each other the whole time. So um, I think that there are varying degrees of organization that we can expect from a project like this. But even when things do happen and life does happen, um, being able to stay informed and stay in touch with each other was, was so important for us, not only on a personal level on, you know, on helping um, one another through our various crises during this time, but also just on making sure that the work was still happening too. Are you back, Carla? I think I am. Okay. Can you hear me? <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Yay. Okay. Everything you said sounded great, Kim. <laughs> Thank you for, Thank you. I, I'm so sorry for like whatever my internet was doing. <laughs> oh, it's no problem. You're good. Technical difficulties. <laughs> we were just talking about like, you know, delays happening that you can't anticipate. And then there we go. The and there's the delay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, funny. Okay. Roy, do you feel pretty good? Yeah, that was really good. Thank you. Okay. Carla, do you feel pretty good? Roy. Yeah, no, thank you so much, both of you, for, for this opportunity. Um, I really appreciate it. It's super kind. Yeah, we'll have to maybe do some episodes where we can talk about both of your poetry more specifically. That would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, that would that would absolutely be great. Um, Roy, is there anything you need us to send you? Uh, no, not right now. I'll just um, edit this. Well, let me stop the recording real quick. Uh <laughs> Do we want to do a sign off or anything?